Reading from Paul's letter to the Galatian church, chapter 1, verses 11 through 24. Dear friends, I solemnly swear that the way to heaven which I preach is not based on merely human whim or dream, for my message comes from no less than a person than Jesus Christ himself, who told me what to say. No one else has taught me. You know what I was like when I followed the Jewish religion, how I went after the Christians mercifully, hunting them down and doing my best to get rid of them all. I was one of the most religious Jews of my own age in the whole country and tried as hard as I possibly could to follow all the old traditional rules of my religion. But then something happened. For even before I was born, God had chosen me to be his and called me. What kindness and grace to reveal his son within me so that I could go to the Gentiles and show them the good news about Jesus. When all this happened to me, I didn't go at once and talk it over with anyone else. I didn't go up to Jerusalem to consult with those who were apostles before I was. No, I went away into the desert of Arabia and then came back to the city of Damascus. It was not until three years later that I finally went to Jerusalem for a visit with Peter and stayed there with him for 15 days. And the only other apostle that I met at that time was James, our Lord's brother. Listen to what I am saying, for I am telling you this in the very presence of God. This is exactly what happened. Then after this visit, I went to Syria and Sicilia. And still the Christians in Judea didn't even know what I looked like. All they knew was what the people were saying that our former enemy was now preaching the very faith he tried to wreck, and they gave glory to God because of me. The word of God for the people of God. Thank you. you may be seated. Thank you very much, Jerry. Why should I listen to you? That's the question. Anybody had that question asked of them? Why should I listen to you? As we are opening the book of Galatians, we have found that it's about two things. Number one, it's about what the gospel really is. That's what Paul wants to get across. And we've come up with this little tag phrase that we use that Paul writes first, Jesus plus nothing. That's what the gospel is. Nobody else can make us right with God. We can't make ourselves right with God. It's Jesus and his sacrifice, his perfect life, sacrifice for us. And it's his work that makes us right with God. That's what the Galatian letter is about. But number two, the Galatian letter is also about Paul saying and answering that question, why should we listen to you? And Paul is saying, here's why I'm qualified to say what I'm saying. And so this little section that we just read is more than likely a response to charges that we don't really have. We have to kind of read between the lines on the other side, but they were charges against Paul by these teachers, by these agitators who had come in to preach something else. After Paul established these churches, he moved on and these teachers came in and they started teaching a gospel that was different than Paul's. And Paul is writing back and saying, here's why you should listen to me. Here's why I have credibility. Verse 11, he says this, let me make clear 
In other words, let me certify to you why you should listen to me. And then what follows is basically Paul's testimony. He gives his own little story of what brought him to this place in time. And that little story could follow a simple outline. I'm just going to frame it up this way. What was, what happened, and what changed in the life of Paul. And so what was the life of Paul like? Look at verse 13 and 14. He says, I thought I was on God's side. I was doing things that I thought were right to do because I wanted to honor the God of Israel. I was zealous for him, he says. I was following the traditions of my fathers. I was advancing far beyond any of the other people in my age. I mean, I was over the top committed. I went above and beyond my task. And one of those things that I, that I started doing because I knew it was right to do was I needed to stop this sect called Christianity. This, these people that had started following this guy named Jesus, I knew in my heart that I was doing the right thing for God when I went out and I set out to destroy them. And that's what I set out to do. And it wasn't a pretty sight. I arrested people. I imprisoned people. I drugged them to stand trial. Some of them I even put to death for this kind of blasphemy. I was so filled with hate for these people who followed Jesus. Now, this is Paul a lot later, and he's telling his story. And one thing jumps out at us right away, and it is this, that Paul doesn't withhold any information about what he used to be. And there's some incriminating details here. But Paul lays it all out. He's not afraid of his failures because he knows that they will show the power of God. We, in that day, would have rightly said of Paul, only God can change that one. Have you ever kind of heard that line or used that line yourself? You've looked at somebody else and just the rotten things that they're doing and you just think, only God. Only God can, can change that one. And Paul explains, here I was, I had my head down, I was going 90 miles an hour in my religious life, I was trying to be good to impress God, I was trying to squash his enemies, which I thought were the Christians, but all the time, I was lost. I was do- all I was doing, really, at the end of the day, was pretty- putting perfume on a corpse, because I was lost. And the problem with religion is that, because, is that you can be really zealous but you can be really zealous for the wrong thing. The problem with religion is that you can be really moral, but you can be really moral for the wrong reason. And that's where Paul is. He's morally righteous. He's doing the wrong things, er, the right things. He's just not right with God. He's wrong with God. And so Paul is a Pharisee and he's doing Pharisee things for a God so that he can be right with God. And if there's one word that we could used to sum up this what was in Paul's life, it's this, religious, religious. Paul was religious, religious. So what happened? What happened to him? Well, verse 15 and 16, he says three things happened, and they were all because of God. Nothing I did, but it was all on God's side. He set me apart from birth, number one. In other words, he determined beforehand. He had a plan for my life. God planned the gospel in Paul even before he was born. God shaped him throughout his life and prepared him for the things that he was going to ask Paul to do. And Paul never knew it, but as he was zealous in the wrong way, Paul, 
Paul was being prepared for a future task that God had for him. All he had to do was one day say yes. So first, he had a plan. Secondly, he called me by his grace. If God had given Paul what he deserved in this time when he's going out and trying to do his best to be right with God by his own works, he would have been lost. But he says, God extended grace to me. It was nothing that I did. It was just God. My sins were deep. They were heinous. In another letter, Paul will say of himself, I am the chief of sinners. Like there is nobody else on the planet that is worse than me. I look back at that life that I had and it was terrible. I can't, Im- I just, I, 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 I can't even talk about it. I was such, I was a chief of sinners, right? One of the ways that we justify our sin as Christians and as people is that we try to look around for other people who seem worse than we are, right? Because if we find somebody else who's a little worse than we are, then at least we can say, well, I'm not that. Paul says, you know what? I'm that guy. I'm that guy that everybody points at and says, at least I'm not that. And yet, he is invited in. And that should give us hope. That should give us great hope because if there's hope for Paul, then there's hope for us. And that hope is because of grace. It's, grace is the free unmerited favor of God working on our hearts and our minds to change our lives. Somebody said it this way, no one is so good that they don't need the grace of the gospel, nor so bad that they can't receive the grace of the gospel. And so God called Paul in grace. Here's number three, God revealed Jesus to me. God revealed his son to me. As I was going out and persecuting Christians, we can read about this in Acts chapter 9, I'm on the road to Damascus, and I'm struck down by a a bright light. He doesn't fill in those kind of details in this story here to the Galatians, but I'm sure that they probably would have known them. And he's struck down, and in the light is a voice, and the voice says, I'm Jesus, the one that you're persecuting. And Paul is like, oh, no, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, I'm, I'm arresting Christians, I'm stamping out Christians, I'm, I'm going to do God's work. And this voice, who is Jesus, says, yes, you are doing those things, but it's not God's work. It's against me. It's against him. You're persecuting me. When you hurt my church, you're hurting me. And from that experience, Paul learned who Jesus was, what his life meant, what his death meant, what his resurrection meant. And that initial circumstance led Paul to believe this person that I am trying to discredit is actually God. And so Paul would say, here's what's happened in my life. I met Jesus, I realized he's God, I realized he had a plan for me the whole time in my life, even when I was fighting against him, and it became clear that the the purpose that Jesus came for was to die for sinners, to take their place so that they could be right with God. And I realized for the first time, I'm one of those people, I'm one of those sinners. I was a Pharisee, a Pharisee, I always did the right thing, and yet I was the chief of sinners. I was fighting against God, trying to be right with God through my own effort. And I realized that the only way I can be right with God is through Jesus. 
Because the gospel is Jesus plus nothing. Say it with me. The gospel is Jesus plus nothing. So that's what happened in Paul's life. What changed? What changed? He says, I was the persecutor of the church, but now after meeting Jesus, I became a preacher of the church. Before, I was trying to build myself up by breaking God's church, but now God is breaking me and instead he's using me to build up his church. And Paul is a new man with a new message. And God is working all along Paul's life to use Paul to build the very faith that Paul was opposing. In this course, what happened gave Paul two things. It gave him a new relationship with God. See, he had to relearn who God was. He had a certain view of God, and all of a sudden, that view was turned on its head. And he, he said, I've got to get to know this Jesus because I've been fighting him so far. I've got to figure this guy out. In verses 17 and 18, it's interesting that in order to learn about Jesus, Paul doesn't go to Jerusalem where all the apostles are. That would have been the obvious choice. If you want to go to school, you go to where the school is. You don't go out opposite to where the school is. And the apostles were in Jerusalem, but that's not where he went. Paul went out in the Damascus wilderness, out into Arabia. He goes out alone. And there's so much, there's so much here in this time that we just don't know. We don't know what happened. Was it a retreat? Was it uh, just a spiritual experience? Was it Jesus preaching to Paul? Was it Paul studying the scriptures and putting pieces together? Probably all of the above. We don't know. And it could have lasted up to three years. Some people have made the comparison that, hey, Jesus was with the original apostles for three years. Maybe this was his way of training Paul that same time. What we know is that because of this time, Paul becomes sure of himself because he's alone in teaching and prayer and meditation and reflection, and he also becomes sure of who God is, and it all happens in the wilderness. And this new relationship with God leads him to a new relationship with something else that's quite astounding, a new relationship with God's people. Verse 17 says, after the wilderness, Paul returns to where? Damascus. Where was he going on the road when he got struck down? He was going to Damascus. Why was he going there? He was going to kill Christians. That gets thwarted, right? He goes on into Damascus and meets a a man named Ananias, and then he goes out into the wilderness, and then after three years or his time in the wilderness, whatever that was, he goes back into Damascus. He returns to the very place where he went to destroy Christians. And instead of destroying Christians... He develops relationships with the Christians that he was once determined to abduct and to carry off for trial and for imprisonment. When we find Jesus, one of the first ultimate tests of our faith is to own our past mistakes with the people that that know us the best and know our mistakes the best. One of the first tests about whether our faith is real, is whether we are able to pop up in somebody in front of somebody and say, I was wrong. I, I navigated that incorrectly. I was so filled with pride. Would you forgive me? And that's where Paul is. That's an incredible task for anybody. But it's an incredible task for somebody like Paul. And I, I don't know how he pulled that kind of thing off except for this. 
I know that because of his time in the wilderness where he was alone with God, he was totally secure in the forgiveness of God through Christ. That's the only way that we can go to somebody and say, I was wrong, forgive me. When we know that God has totally forgiven us, that we're totally right with Him, then our worth and our identity isn't affected if other people around us don't extend that same grace and forgiveness. Because we have it from God. And so Paul goes to Damascus, and the new relationship with God leads to a new relationship with God's people. And then, after that, he goes to Jerusalem. He finally does end up where the apostles are. He talks to Peter, the rock, And they swap stories about Jesus. And the reason that that's in this text is he wants to point out to the Galatians, listen, I got a message from Jesus and I didn't confer with anybody else for a long time. And when I did confer with the apostles that were in Jerusalem who walked and talked with Jesus himself, I didn't have to change any of my message. And that's the point. Peter and I compared notes with one another. And my message didn't change. I got it from God himself. He's not there long. He's there 15 days. And that's all the time it took for people to rise up and learn that he was there. He still had some enemies, right? And Paul learns of a plot to kill him. That's in Acts chapter 9, verse 29. And so he's let down in a basket over the wall. He flees to Cilicia and Syria. And that's significant because he's from Tarsus. And Tarsus is the capital of Cilicia. So Paul just goes home. He goes home. And that's Paul's story. That's the story that he recounts here. Those are the the parts that he highlights. And I just want to say today, everybody has a story. Your story is not unlike Paul's story. It's probably very similar. There are three points. If we want to use hitchhike on what Paul did, we we could use those same three points and just kind of reorganize them a little bit. We could tell about our life before Christ, how we met Jesus, and our life after Jesus. Every one of us has that kind of story. We all have a life before Christ. We have all been set apart. We have all been determined beforehand by God. God has always been at work in our lives, shaping and molding us so that we're prepared to do what He asks us to do. One of the most endearing things that you can do and should do with people around you when you share your story is to be honest about your life before Christ. Paul was... I made some woeful decisions. I was so filled with pride. Life was all about me. Man, if I could go back, I would change some things. Because of what God has done through Christ. Because it's Christ that makes me right with God and not anything that I do. I can be honest about that former life. And I can say without a shadow of a doubt that even in that former life, when I was making all those terrible mistakes, God was still working. And everyone in this room has a great capacity to give direction and counsel to other people because of those past failures. Everyone in this room has something to say, a way to direct other people. Man, if you could just avoid this, don't do what I did. And if we're in Christ, there's nothing to hide about our past life. And so we have a life before Christ. And then we each have a story about how we met Jesus. Some are pretty radical, Some um, really pique people's interest. Some gather a crowd. Some are dramatic. Some are inspiring. And then others of us in the room would say, well, nothing spectacular. I mean, I always kind of grew up in church and ho-hum and, you know, I got the gold stars on the 
on the wall in Sunday school. And, but we all, no matter what corner we're coming from, we all have that day when we first understood the, that, what the gospel is. That it's Jesus that makes us right with God. Nothing we do. And we all have that time that we responded to that message in faith. We responded in confession and repentance and in the waters of baptism. And life hasn't been the same since, right? The, the rebellious people among us, the, the prodigal sons, we stopped running from God to get our identity. And we started running to Him so that we could get our identity in Him. And the religious people among us, people that were trying to be good, we stopped working for God to get our identity. And we started resting in who He is and what He's done. Jesus plus nothing. And so we all have a story about how we met Jesus. And then we all have a story about the life after we met Jesus. What, what changed? What happened after I met Jesus? Paul had a purpose after Jesus was revealed to him. His purpose was, I've got to go preach. And specifically, I've got to go preach to the Gentiles, to the people who are outside the nation of Israel. Oh, that nation of Israel was, that, the Jewish people were the people that I was trying to protect, but I realized that God has a bigger plan. And my job in that bigger plan is to go and to preach to those people that nobody ever thought would be included in God's family. Once you get that God has always been at work in your life, even before your life, the next question that has to come is why? Why has God been at work in you? Why, when you say yes to Jesus, what has he prepared you to do? Another way to say it is, uh, what's your why as a Christian? That's thrown around in a lot of self-help books. Find your why, right? We have to find our why as Christians. What's your why? Why did God unconditionally love you? How has he been shaping and molding you over your life? What has he called you to do? How has he gifted you? How has he empowered you? How will the revealing of Jesus Christ in your life change what you do? And so is now the time to start preaching to others? Is now the time to start singing for others? Is now the time to start teaching others because that's what you do? How about battling for others? Because you just love putting your arm around people and encouraging them. How about bringing justice to others? How about feeding others? How about comforting others? How about helping others? Everyone has a story. Before Christ, how I met Christ, after Christ. And let me, let me just end this way. Let me give you three things that are truths about every story in this room. Every story. Number one, every story matters. Every story matters. Your story, whatever it is, will be unlike anyone else's story. And that's a positive thing. You might think that your story isn't worth sharing. Uh, It's kind of the humdrum story. But I promise, there's somebody out there that will never be able to relate to anybody's story except yours. Their way to Jesus is through your story. It matters immensely. And if our stories matter, I want to go a little further with this one, then it matters how we shape our stories. And that's a double-edged sword. Um, There's a great line that goes this way. How you live today is the story you tell tomorrow. How you live today 
is the story you tell tomorrow. And the two-edged sword to that line is, first, it means that I've got to live well today. I want to do the things today that I'm going to be proud to share tomorrow. I want the story tomorrow to be a good one, so I'm going to live right today. But the other edge to that sword is this, that even if I don't live up to what the story should be, if I fail today and I'm not able to tell a good story tomorrow, and that will happen, right, because we're people, even if that happens, we still get to determine how the story gets told. Will we tell the story tomorrow if we fail today of blame? Will we tell the story of criticism? Will we tell the story of complaint? Will we tell the story of defensiveness? Will we tell the story of pride? Or will we tell the story of repentance? Will we tell the story of forgiveness? Will we tell the story of love? Will we tell the story of understanding? Will we tell the story of hope? Every story matters. And to put hands and feet on just this point this week, I I want you to engage in a little exercise with me. I want you to think in your brain, who do you praise God because of? Who do you look at in your life and think, if it wasn't for them, if they hadn't shared their story, then I don't know where I'd be. If they hadn't shared their story, I wouldn't know Jesus today. Who is that person? Maybe it's several people. And this week, sometime, maybe even today, would you text them? Would you Facebook them? Would you do whatever you do? Would you actually call them and just say thank you? Thank you for your story. Because without your story, I wouldn't have a story that included Jesus. Then, because every story matters... The flip side of that is, who is praising God because of you? Have you made a difference to somebody else in your life? Have you shared your story so that somebody else could know who Jesus is? And if you haven't, would you just ask God for the chance? Ask God for the chance to share your story. Number two, there will be seasons to your story. And so I want to challenge you to just stay faithful. Just stay faithful. There will be seasons to your story. Just stay faithful. I have mentioned already that your story is not unlike Paul's story. And I could tell, uh, it's just natural, right? You go, yeah, right, my, my story is like Paul's. I mean, here's a guy who wrote most of the New Testament. He traveled the known world. He's single-handedly responsible for putting Christianity on the map. He's planted all these churches everywhere. I mean, how is my story like Paul's? I want you to look at verse 22. There's a word in there that we would never use to describe Paul. Never in a million years. The word in my translation is unknown. I was unknown to the Christians in Jerusalem. The only thing that was known about his story was that he once persecuted the church, but now he's preaching Jesus. Okay? Now skip down to verse 1 of chapter 2. What's the very first phrase? The very first phrase in my translation is 14 years later. Anybody have that? Two of you. Okay. All right. Wonderful. 14 years later, it's like a dash on a tombstone. We really don't know what 
what the story is during those 14 years. And here's what I can assume. I can assume that Paul had a 14-year-long season of living a quiet, unknown life. He's not a missionary yet. He's just Paul the neighbor. He's Paul the businessman. He's living at home, remember? He's Paul the friend. But we know this, absolutely, that that's all he needed to point people to God. We don't remember Paul for this time in his life. Before you came in today, you might not have even known that this part of Paul's life existed. This quiet 14 years. But it was still fruitful. Paul is giving his life. He's plying his trade. He's reading the Tarsus Times enough, just enough to get to the Sudoku page, right? He's going to synagogue on Sunday and he's preaching the faith. He is telling his story about how God in grace revealed Jesus to him. He's telling the people who surround him about the work of Jesus that faith in the work of Jesus will make them right with God. And that's not quite the picture that we get of Paul. That's not the, quite the picture we usually paint. But understanding this quiet time helps us understand this, that whether our lives are big public missionary journeys or whether our lives are filled with privately mowing grass and paying bills, both can be used. God uses both seasons because both are fueled by the gospel. So can I challenge you in this? Let's just get good at whatever season we're in. Most of us might be in the quiet 14 years of life. God really doesn't need flashy and famous. He just needs faithful. And that's what Paul was. Faithfully pointing people to Jesus plus nothing else. And I can imagine Paul during those 14 years, people would come up to him and say, why should I listen to you? Why should I listen to you? And I imagine Paul's answer was something along these lines, you shouldn't. I can't save you. But I can tell you about the one who can. And you should listen to him. Because it's generally a bad move to ignore what dead people who have come back from the grave have to say. Here's number three. And I hope this is great comfort to you. We will never do anything in our life but further God's purposes. We will never do anything in our life but further God's purposes. No matter how much we bungle up our life, I know that this is true. And three quick case studies should be enough. One is Paul right here. He is zealous against the church, and now on the other side of meeting Jesus, he is zealous for the church. Not even Paul's destruction of the church could prevent God's building of it, even by Paul's own hand. That's amazing. You can never do anything in life but further God's purposes. Number two is a guy named C.S. Lewis. You've probably heard of him. He's one of the greatest Christian minds in the last 100 years. He wasn't always a Christian. As a matter of fact, as a kid, he attended an English boarding school called Bookham. And in this boarding school in England, he met a teacher. And the students would nickname this teacher the Great Knock because he had had incredible influence on them. And Lewis says when he first met him, he started to drive him from the railroad station to the school, and he writes this, You are now, the great Knox said, proceeding along the principal artery between great and little Bookham. I tried to make conversation, said Lewis. So I said I was surprised at the scenery of Surrey County. It was much wilder than I expected. Stop, shouted Kirk. What do you mean by wildness, and on what grounds had you for not expecting it? I replied, I, I don't know. 
But as answer after answer was torn to shreds, it at last dawned upon me that he really wanted to know. He was not just making conversation. He wasn't joking. He wasn't snubbing me. He really wanted to know. And I was stung into attempting real answers. A few passes sufficed to show that I had no clear and distinct idea corresponding to the word wildness, and that insofar as I had any idea at all, wildness was a singularly inept word anyway. Do do you not see then, concluded the great knock, that your remark was totally meaningless? (laughs) I was just a kid. I was prepared to sulk a little, assuming the subject would be dropped. Never was I more mistaken in my life. Having analyzed my terms, Kirk was proceeding to deal with my proposition as a whole. On what had I based my expectations about the flora and geology of Surrey? Was it maps? Was it photographs? Was it books? I could produce none. It had, heaven help me, never occurred to me that what I called my thoughts needed to be based on anything. Kirk once more drew a conclusion about the slightest sign without the slightest sign of emotion but equally without the slightest concession to what i thought do you not see then that you have no right to have any opinion whatsoever on this subject he said and that set the tone by this time our acquaintance had lasted three and a half minutes but the tone that had been set by this first conversation was set for what, what was to come without a single break during all the years I spent at Bookham. If ever a man came to being purely logical and a purely logical entity, that man was Kirk. He was absolutely logical. Star Trek got it wrong. It wasn't Spock. It was Kirk. Kirk. And Kirk was also a fervent atheist. All the time, that Lewis was with the great knock who tried like crazy to have all of his young men be absolutely logical and therefore, of course, not religious, right? All of that time caused Lewis to become an atheist himself. But later, after Jesus was revealed to C.S. Lewis, he had become a man with amazing logical acumen. He could skewer an argument in a second if it was bad. He could build an incredible argument with if it was good. And this person, the great knock, had unknowingly turned C.S. Lewis into the most used defender of the faith in the 20th century. See, no matter what you do, no matter how hard you try, you will never do anything but further the purposes of God in the world. That's true. I can give you one more example on this from the life of Jesus. Here's the perfect son who comes to live in human flesh. He lives the perfect life. He is the son of God who will save us all. But at the end, here come his enemies. Here comes betrayal. Here comes stripes on his back. Here comes nails through his hands and feet. Here comes a crown of thorn on his head. Here comes death and defeat. And men had tried hard and had succeeded in killing God himself. And of all of the mistakes in the history of mistakes, that's probably the worst. But nothing we will do will ever do anything but further the purposes of God. And God used even this death, even this defeat, to command a resurrection. And he brought victory and he brought life, first for Jesus and next for us. The very sin that you came into this place with today can be what drives you into the arms of Jesus. God's purposes will always win. And this isn't isn't a discussion about whether we have free will or not. No, I'm I'm not going there. I'm just saying 
it's because his purposes will always be furthered because he's that good. He's that much ahead of us. He's that unfathomable that he can take your worst mistakes and turn them into incredible victories. No matter what you do, no matter how hard you try, you will never do anything but further the purposes of God in the world. And that can be a warning to you. Or it can be the most wonderful thing you've ever heard in your life. That's your choice today. Is it a warning? Fight. Just keep fighting against God. He'll win in the end. Or is it wonderful? I don't need to fight against God. Jesus has been revealed to me. Maybe that's happened even in the time that you've been sitting in these chairs. And because of that, we're going to offer an invitation. Would you stand? Let me pray. I'm going to have the band come. And then we're going to offer an invitation. And if you need to respond to this God who calls you in grace and reveals Jesus to you, would you come? Father, we thank you for our story. We thank you for Paul's story. We thank you that even if there are parts of our story that we look back and we say, oh my goodness, I, I just, I can't believe that that was me. And yet Jesus came into my life and so I can be honest about that and I can see God's hand even in that part of my story that I might not like so much. And because of that, I'm a different person today. I'm a saved person in the grace of God. Father, we thank you for Jesus that makes us right with you, that it's his work, Jesus plus nothing else, that makes us acceptable, that we can be brought into your family and be called sons and daughters.